This, uh, this past week, my, my sister and her family dropped off Emma, as you heard, at school, uh, starting off as a freshman at Liberty University down in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I don't know about you, but when uh, other people go through things that you went through, it kind of makes, makes me reflect on that season of my life. So I was thinking back to when I headed off to college as a freshman, 21 years ago. 21 years ago, I headed off to college as a freshman. Uh, I remember my friend, John Rogers, who was my roommate, he came and picked me up. He had a 1993 red Dodge Colt. And we somehow managed to put all of our stuff, all of his stuff and all of my stuff into this little red Dodge Colt and ourselves. I think Emma might've had two vehicles full of her stuff, but we had two people's stuff in one vehicle. And we headed off to college and I spent three years at a Bible school called Elam out there in Lima, New York. And I was kind of reflecting on my college years, and the truth is, I don't have a lot of vivid memories from those three years. I don't have really lots of memories. I can't remember a lot about those years. And now listen, the reason I can't remember my college years is not the reason some of you can't remember your college years. Is, is there, I, just can't, I just can't remember them. I can't recall them. But one thing that I remember about being in college is I remember feeling lonely at times, like more lonely than I had ever felt at any other time in my life. And it made zero sense because here I am at a Bible school surrounded by people my age, same stage of life, same interests, same values. Many are uh, headed in the same direction. We all are eating the same basic diet consisting of Pop-Tarts and ramen noodles (laughs) and late night runs to McDonald's for double cheeseburgers which is where, they, where you get that freshman 15, by the way. I don't know if you've heard about the freshman 15. I didn't know it was going to be 15 pounds a month, I, but freshman, <laughs> freshman 15. So here I am surrounded by so many people that I have things in common with thinking, surely I won't feel alone here. And yet there were times when I did feel alone. And I don't know for sure that it's the loneliest I've ever felt in my life, but, but I did learn this. Loneliness is worse when you can't explain it away. Loneliness is worse when you feel alone in a crowd, right? There's lots that has been said and sung about loneliness. You can't listen to the radio very long without hearing a song where somebody is talking about loneliness, especially if you listen to country music. Uh, Loneliness is movies. There's stories that have been written. It's It's a universal experience. Every single one of you in this room at some point has felt or maybe currently feel lonely. And we're going to continue in our series called Before the Fall, and we're in week three. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at things that existed in creation before the fall. So week one was order. Last week, we talked about work. And this week, we're going to talk about loneliness. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter two, verses 18 to 25, and we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the reason for loneliness, the results of loneliness, and the remedy for loneliness. So let's talk first this morning about the reason for loneliness. You know, right here in the beginning of this passage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I was reading an article this week by a pastor in Nashville who also serves as a backstage chaplain at a concert venue. 
was like, how do you get that job? That's pretty cool. So he gets to go to concerts for free and he's the backstage chaplain who he'll meet the famous artists and he'll pray with them if they want prayer or give them spiritual counsel and guidance. And he was recounting one time where he met someone that he didn't give her name, but he said if he did, we would all know her. Very, very famous, popular music artist and she's performing in Nashville and they're having a conversation right before she went out for her concert and in this conversation she was admitting that relating to other people chiefly through a microphone or through a screen or through a written page is a painfully isolating experience and this is an exact quote by her she said this in about five minutes I'm going to walk out on that stage thousands of people's attention will be fixed on me and they will sing along with me. They'll sing all of my songs. Then tomorrow night, I will do it again and then again and again. And you might think, what a life. She's living the dream. But the truth is, being the person on the stage makes me feel like the loneliest person in the room. Why does she write songs? Why does she arrange music? Why does she perform for the enjoyment of others? Well, we answered that last week. It's because she's been created in God's image. She's been created to do work. But why does she feel lonely on that stage? And it's the same exact answer. Because she's been created in God's image, and so she craves meaningful, fulfilling relationship. And the truth is, is in our world today, there's so many counterfeits of meaningful, true, fulfilling relationship and community, right? I think of two, uh, I think of two counterfeits right off the top. One is technology. Technology promises us this level of connectedness to each other. Can any of you remember what you used to do before you could text somebody if you needed something or if you wanted to figure out where to go to eat in a new city before you could bring up your Yelp app? What did you do? I mean, I guess you just kind of went wherever you could find. It's hard to even remember life before that. And with social media, we're we're connected in, in unprecedented ways. But just a couple weeks ago, the Washington Post released an article about adolescents and the use of their smartphones. And they have done studies that have directly linked the amount of use to, of a smartphone to levels of depression in young people. They're not saying it's the cause necessarily, but they're saying there's a correlation. So here we are with these things in our hands that none of us could have jumped up 25 years ago. I mean, literally, you have everything in your hand you need to live. And I, I, I saw a joke recently. It was like, we have everything in our hands that we need to live, and instead we spend it watching videos of cats on YouTube. But... <laughs> You have this, and yet there's this, there's this feelings of isolation and loneliness in this generation. Another counterfeit to real community is simply proximity. We think that if we're physically near each other, that we, because we've came into the same building this morning, that we're in meaningful community. Well, not necessarily. You could come here every Sunday morning and really not be built into this church not really be part of this community. You could be in this room this morning and feel very lonely. And so we have this need, this craving, and the reason why is because in Genesis 126, God says, let us make humankind in our image. And that's the clue right there. God is speaking in the third person. Let us create humankind in our image. So the reason for loneliness is simply this. It's the Trinity, The Trinity is the reason for loneliness. Let me explain. So the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's three basic truths that make up the doctrine of the Trinity. This is an important belief that's unique, really, to Christianity. Uh, First off, God is three persons, three distinct persons with three distinct roles. And, And second truth is this, each of the three persons is fully God. 
God the Father is fully God, God the Son is fully God, God the Holy Spirit is fully God. But then the third truth, which seems to be a contradiction, is this, there's still only one God. So we talk about three in one, one God and three persons. And for each of these beliefs and for each of these truths, there's a heresy out there, there's a false teaching out there that says it's not true. So with the first one, God is three persons, there's a heresy out there called modalism. And modalism basically teaches that God is one, but he expresses and reveals himself in three different ways. So he, there's three different modes to how God operates, but God is actually not three distinct persons. That's modalism. The second uh, one, each person is fully God, there's a heresy that was a really big deal in the early church called Arianism. And Arianism basically teaches that Jesus came after God the Father. They, they take one verse out of Paul's writings out of context, and they say, see, Jesus was the firstborn of creation, so he, is actually came, he came subsequent to the Father. So Jesus is not fully divine. And then the third one, which... There is one God. There are people who teach tritheism, that really there's three separate gods and they're not connected in this way. But as Christians, we believe that the Trinity, that God the Father, that the Godhead has always existed. So God has always existed from eternal past to eternal future within relationship with himself. The Athanasian Creed says it this way, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And then listen to this phrase, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Well, that's the mystery. Neither blending their persons, they are distinct persons, but not dividing their essence. They're one in heart. They're one in mind. They're one. This is incredible mystery, and you should know a little bit about it because you're in a church right now that is named after it. And so the Trinity. Now, I said this a couple weeks ago. One of the reasons why I think that the Trinity is, is is true, besides what scripture teaches, is simply this. Who would have made it up? Who would have come up with this idea? I mean, one God makes sense. I can wrap my mind around that. Three gods make sense. I can understand that. Even the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans, like that I kind of understand. Like that's easy to understand. There's a, there's a God of the waters. There's a God of that all. Make, who sits around and goes, I got an idea. This is really going to help people. This is, this is really going to get people to buy in on what we're trying. This is such an outside-of-the-box supernatural concept that I'm not, there's no way we would have actually made this up. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. Now, we do, we do our best to explain it, you know, especially to children. We say things like there's a three-leaf clover, there's the eggshell, there's the egg white, there's the egg yolk. We talk about water being solid, liquid, or gas. Those are okay. The truth is, is those are actually all more similar to the heresies that I listed than they are to the actual doctrine of the Trinity. But we do the best we can. But at the end of the day, we have to be okay with saying it's a mystery. It really is a mystery. There is not a metaphor that works for this because it's not something that we see in the natural the theologians of the early church tried to understand the Trinity, and they came up with this really great explanation. And it's, it's something that you would see at a Greek wedding. It's a distinctive way of dancing at a Greek wedding, and it's called a perichorosis. And this is how Jonathan Marlowe describes this dance. He says, there are not two dancers. There are always at least three dancers. They start to go in circles, weaving in and out of this very beautiful pattern of motion. They start to go faster and faster and faster, all the while staying in perfect rhythm and in sync with each other. Eventually, they are dancing so quickly, yet so effortlessly, that as you look at them, it just becomes a blur. Their individual identities are part of a larger dance. The early church fathers and mothers looked at that dance and said to each other, ah, that's what the Trinity is like. 
They're still distinct, but they're, the way that they're moving together, the way that they're working together, the way that they're in sync together, there's a blur now where their individual identities are part of a larger dance. It's a harmonious set of relationship in which there is mutual giving and receiving. The relationship is called love, and it's what the Trinity is all about. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, each of the divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, centers upon the others. None demands that the other revolves around him. Each voluntarily circles the other too, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And this creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. And then Elmer Coyler connects it to our salvation. He says, what Christ did on the cross was not simply forgive us of our sins, although he, he did that, but it's more than that. You know, it's more than that, right? Jesus didn't just die on the cross to forgive us. It was to restore us into right relationship, to union and communion with the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Did you catch that? All three of them have their part in this. To restore us to union and communion with the Father through the Son in the Spirit. All of Christian faith, all of Christian life is participatory. So when you listen to these uh, preachers and teachers of the scriptures say things like, the Trinity is a harmonious set of relationships, mutual giving and receiving. They love and adore and defer to each other and they rejoice in each other. And all of Christian life and faith and practice is participatory. And then you think, we've been created in that image. That's the image you've been created in. And so because of that, we've been created for relationship. We're in God's image. And God has always existed in relationship with himself. And so we have this tremendous need. And that's why we feel lonely. Some people might push back and say, no, loneliness is because we're sinners. No, it's not. Loneliness existed in the garden before the fall, before there was sin. Adam felt alone. And so loneliness is not a sin or a result of sin. Loneliness is because we've been created in God's image. There is a relational neediness in us. Now, of course, that can be unhealthy, and we'll talk about that. But there is an inherent relational neediness in us that is not bad, and you cannot fight it, and you cannot ignore it. And there's some people who spend their whole lives trying to ignore and fight their need for other people. They're very independent. They're very self-reliant. They've been hurt. They've been wounded. And so they distance themselves. And you're actually, if you do that, you're working against the very nature in which you've been created. It's not good. Do you notice that God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for him to be alone. That was shocking if you read it from Genesis 1 up until that point. Because up until that point, whenever God looks at creation, you know what he says? It's good. It's good. Six days, it's good. Or five days, it's good. It's good. Sixth day, it's very good. Then he looks at everything, it's good. So here you got this rhythm of God saying, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden he looks at Adam, kind of like, just like hanging out alone in the garden. And he's like, that's not good. It's not good. And listen, we know it's not good to be alone. We understand. In, in, the, in, in 2000, a movie came out that was very popular called Castaway. Many of you probably saw it. It was Tom Hanks as a FedEx executive. And he's delivering these packages and he's flying in a plane and the plane goes down and Tom Hanks ends up on this island all by himself. And, uh, and it's the whole story is about how is he going to be found? How is he going to get off the island? And to his advantage, he crashed in a FedEx plane with packages full of different things. And so the packages begin to wash ashore and he begins to open up the packages and he finds different things that can help him live and help him survive. In one package he opens, there's a volleyball. And he's so alone He's so lonely 
that he makes the volleyball into his friend, and he names the volleyball, who knows the name? Wilson, yeah, Wilson. See, it's stuck with you because of our nature. And there's, he finally gets off the island, spoiler alert, I'm 17 years old, so it's too late for spoiler alerts, but he finally gets off the island, and as he's on this homemade raft off the island, Wilson, his volleyball, falls into the ocean and goes away from him. And Tom Hanks is crying and screaming, Wilson. And we're watching it in the theater, and you're like, I know it's just a volleyball and I'm not even a huge volleyball fan. Like, I know it's just a volleyball, but that's so sad, right? People were crying. You don't have to raise your hand, but people were watching that crying because a volleyball fell into the water. Now, if it was his dinner, then I would be crying with him, but his <laughs> volleyball, and he's crying out for Wilson. But the reason why it resonates so deeply with us is that we're so wired for relationship that even when we have to form a false sort of counterfeit relationship with an inanimate object, and then we lose it, we feel the pain. And so we experience this loneliness because we've been created in God's image. Even in paradise, Adam was lonely. We've been created in the image of a triune God who has eternally existed in relationship with himself. We can't avoid it. We can't fight it. That's the reason for loneliness. Now let's talk about the results of loneliness. We're gonna look at the rest of the passage now. Let's go back and to the passage in Genesis 2 and read verses 19 through 25. Let's see what God does. What's, he sees that Adam's alone and lonely and it's not good, so what does he do? Verse 19, it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This is cool. We see Adam at work here. This is Adam having dominion over creation. This is what we were created to do. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. Can you imagine? That's a long work day for Adam, sitting there naming all these animals. I, I bet at the beginning he was very creative. He was like, platypus. You know, he's like coming up with these long, exciting words. And at the end, he's just like, ant. <laughs> and then he just names it what it does, fly. Like he just loses all of his interest in doing this. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So there's sort of this odd dual task happening here. Adam is both naming the animals and he's looking for somebody that's a fit for him. Who is like me here? Who is a helper for me. But the problem is animals, as wonderful as they are, and as much as we should value them, they're not created in the image of God. And Adam needed another image bearer with which he could have meaningful, significant relationship. And none of the animals were going to be able to do the trick. In verse 21, God steps in and he says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. The word woman literally means out of the man and brought her to the man. Then man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're gonna talk about that verse next week. But what we see here is the results of loneliness is that we see at first Adam at work. Here's Adam at work naming the animals, looking for a helper that's suitable for him, but he can't find anyone. So then God steps in and acts. He puts Adam into a deep sleep. He does surgery and he creates another image bearer. 
And what I love about this, this relationship between Adam and Eve is that you have equal, but not identical. That's an important thing for us to understand, I think, even today in our society, that you can be equal, but not be identical. And here at the beginning, we see God creates gender as part of his plan. There is some way in which their beautiful relationship between a man and a woman somehow properly and effectively images the very nature of God. And so here he gives Eve to Adam equal but different. And we say it this way often in wedding ceremonies. I'll I'll say this often at the beginning of a wedding ceremony as I talk about Adam and Eve. I'll say Eve, in being created from man or out of man, she was not created out of his head to dominate him or to be over him, nor created out of his feet to be under him or trampled by him. But she was created out of his side to be equal with him and from under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. At the very beginning here in Genesis 2, we see that relationship is designed by our God so that we can complement each other. We can't miss that in this text. Eve comes along and Adam says, she is a helper. And that word means that she compliments me that she, she comes alongside me and there's a way in which that together they can image God better than they can on their own. And so there's this beautiful thing here where the relationship is designed so that we can complement each other. What does that mean? So we can help each other. We can serve each other. We can work together. We can defer to one another. Now, in order to have a relationship with someone else that is complementary, you have to do three things. One, this is, this is the very premise. First off, you have to be different than that person. And that's a good thing. We're all different from each other. We're all unique. God didn't create clones. He didn't create robots. Everybody is unique. And that's important because if you met someone who was just like you, they can't compliment you. They're just like you. You need someone who's different than you. Number two, we need to embrace those differences about ourselves. Be honest about our needs and our limitations and be honest about our gifts and abilities. Some of you are hiding your gifts and your abilities because you're worried that if somebody knows that you're good at something, they're gonna ask you, can you compliment me with that gift? Can you use that gift? You ever seen a bumper sticker on the back of the big trucks? Yes, I have a truck. No, I won't help you move. (laughs) People are afraid when they have things like trucks because now they're like, oh no, everybody's going to ask me to help them move their stuff. Sometimes we hide our gifts because we think if somebody knows that that's my gift, that's my passion, then maybe they'll ask me to actually use it. Well, duh. I mean, that's why you were given it so that we could complement each other, so that we could work together. So we need, to, we need to recognize we're different from each other, embrace our differences, and then lastly, we have to enjoy our differences. Can you celebrate how somebody else is different than you? If our hearts aren't right before God, when we see someone that's different from us, we tend to use that as a way to compare ourselves to them as being better than them or, or more informed than them or more spiritual than them. But can you say like, you know what, I'm this way. Let's just give an example. I'm this way when it comes to singing and expression and they're this way. They're, they're very excitable and, ex, and they're an ex, they express and they're outward. I'm an introvert, I'm kind of quiet, I'm reflective, I'm this way. And instead of each person looking at the other person going, why, you know, the introvert looking at the extrovert worshiper and going, why can't you just calm down and be reflective? And the extrovert looking at the introvert and saying, why can't you be like, more like me? Don't you love Jesus as much as I love Jesus? How about we look at each other and go, we compliment each other, right? The, the church is not meant to all look the exact same. There's beauty in the diversity of our gifts and our personalities. And so this is how we complement each other. Now, the problem is, is because of sin, instead of complementing each other, we tend to do one of two things instead. We tend to either try to complete each other or compete with each other. 
So you have some people who look to other human beings and say, can you complete me? And basically what that's doing is it's taking another frail, frail, broken human being and asking them to be your God, to be Jesus for you. Can you complete me? Can you make me feel better? Can you make me feel whole? And some people look their whole lives for that person to come in and complete them. Human beings are not given to you to complete you. They're given to complement you. That's very different. And then the other reaction is to compete with me. Every person is seen as a threat. I have to validate myself through every little victory over every other human being, whether it's in sports or work or relationships or possessions or even every single debate and conversation. I got to compete with you. We've not been given to each other for that. We've been given to each other. So the result of loneliness can be wonderful. It's supposed to be wonderful, complementary relationships and friendships, but it also can be very difficult, can it? People trying to complete themselves with other people and people trying to compete with each other. So we have the reason for loneliness. We have the results of loneliness. And then lastly, this morning, the remedy. What's the remedy for loneliness? This old story I heard my old story I've heard my dad tell many times, a little joke that goes like this. There was a Sunday school teacher one time who asked her class, hey, uh, what am I describing? She says, I, uh, I can be gray or brown. I have a bushy tail, climb trees, store nuts, and nobody answers. All these kids are just sitting there looking at her. She goes, no, let me, and she says it again. They still don't, it says it again, come on. Some, and finally, one of the little girls speaks up and says, um, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. Sometimes in church, we're like, the answer is always Jesus, right? Whatever we say. But you know what's interesting about this? The remedy for loneliness, interestingly enough, is actually not Jesus. And that might sound shocking to you at first, because some people think, if I'm not, the only way I can not feel lonely anymore is to, is to have a better relationship with God. And I would never say don't have a better relationship with God. But Adam had a pretty good relationship with God. I mean, better than yours, no offense. And he still was lonely. So the idea, like there are actually people out there who think, I don't need the church, I just need God. Just me and God, and I'll be okay. And it's a total lie, because you've not been created just to be in a vertical relationship with God. You've been created to be in a horizontal relationship, meaningful, life-giving, yes, difficult relationships at times, with others. So the answer, the remedy for loneliness actually is not Jesus. The remedy for loneliness is meaningful and fulfilling and difficult relationships that are built around the person and mission of Jesus. So Jesus is still in the answer, in case you're nervous. Jesus is still in the answer, but it's relationships that are built around the person and mission of Jesus. You've probably heard me say this before because this is my favorite all-time definition of the church. D.A. Carson, in his book, Love in Hard Places, says that the church is a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. Isn't that good? The church is a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. And I would very humbly tweak his definition and say this, it's a band of natural enemies who are learning to love each other for Jesus' sake. That's true biblical community. True biblical community is not built based on how much I even like you or how much I have in common with you. That's how all other communities are built. But biblical community is built around a shared love and passion for Jesus and his mission, which keeps us shoulder to shoulder even through our differences even through our difficulties. I read an article this past week on the Gospel Coalition website by a pastor named Samuel Amati. Listen to what he says. He says, when the Bible speaks about the church, it refers to it as a covenant community. 
church members aren't, are not just part of a shared interest group. They've covenanted to one another by a sacred promise to oversee one another's membership in the kingdom and faithfulness to King Jesus. We've made a covenant. and we're, In a couple weeks, we're going to have a membership Sunday where you, if you're not a member of the church, you can become a member and enter into this sort of covenant relationship that I covenant with you, that I'm going to be complimentary to you in your faith. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to help you. The New Testament unfolds the details of that sacred promise. Here's what the church does. We regularly gather together. We bear one another's burdens. We bear one another's sorrows. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. And we, of course, forgive. We forgive one another. One of the distinguishing marks of Christian community is our eagerness to forgive, our willingness to forgive. Oh, no, no, but you don't. What if they don't ask for forgiveness? Well, then even more forgive. Because when Jesus was giving his life for us on the cross, he didn't wait for the people who were nailing him to the cross to ask for forgiveness. He simply said, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they do. Don't, you're sitting around waiting for somebody to acknowledge what they've done. Well, you, that's not biblical Christian forgiveness. And so, well, but it'll cost me something. Yeah, but forgiveness always costs somebody something. It costs Jesus his life. And so the defining, one of the defining characteristics of biblical community is forgiveness towards your brothers and towards your sisters. Healthy relationships. And so here we have this picture of the church gathering together, encouraging one another, because it's a covenant community. And the key to understanding the remedy for loneliness is understanding the word covenant. We have to understand this word covenant because that's how we get out of loneliness. We're brought into a covenant relationship. Now, in Genesis 2, God puts Adam in a deep sleep. And when he wakes up, do you know what he's in the middle of? He's in the middle of a covenant ceremony. That's what a wedding is. It's a covenant-making ceremony. Adam wakes up, Eve's there, wedding, they're together. And so Adam gets put into a deep sleep, he wakes up, he's in a covenant ceremony. Now, 13 chapters later, in Genesis 15, after the fall, God does it again. He puts someone into a deep sleep, and when they wake up, they're in the middle of a covenant ceremony. And this time, it's not Adam, it's his servant, Abraham. Now, God had made a covenant with Abraham. I will be your God, and your people will be my people. That's the remedy for loneliness, that we have a God who doesn't just have relationship with us one-on-one, but makes us into a people. The story of the Bible is not God saving individuals. It's God forming a people. And so God says to Abraham, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And they begin this covenant ceremony, because covenant is crucial and in a covenant ceremony, because the, actually the Hebrew word for covenant is barut, which literally means to cut a covenant. And the reason why they use the language to cut, or barit, I think, the reason why they used to cut a covenant was because part of the covenant ceremony meant that when there was a Lord and a servant making a covenant, and the servant was saying to the Lord, I'll serve you and I'll be loyal to you, and the Lord was saying to the servant, I'll protect you and provide for you, the servant would then bring animals and cut the animals in half and lay them on the ground, And at one point in the ceremony, the servant would walk in between the pieces of the animals that had been cut in half. And it symbolized this. If I break my covenant to you, then what happened to these animals, let it happen to me. If I don't fulfill, if I'm not the people, this is is what's happening here. Abraham's having this covenant ceremony with God. And he cuts the animals in half. And Abraham is going to walk through. And Abraham is going to make a promise that he can't keep. And the bigger bigger issue is you can't keep it. 
He was gonna make a promise for you and me that we couldn't keep. He was gonna walk through and say, if I don't keep the covenant, if we're not a faithful people, then what happened to these animals, let it happen to me. And God acts again. And for the second time in scripture, in verse 12, or verse, or verse 12 of chapter 15, it says, Abraham was put into a deep sleep. So here's Abram in a deep sleep. And then in verse 17, while Abraham is still in his deep sleep, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch representing the presence of God passed between the pieces. So God puts Abraham in this deep sleep so that he won't make a promise he can't keep. And then God manifests himself in that covenant ceremony and he passes between the pieces. And here's what God was saying to all of us. If you don't do your part, what happened to these animals, it'll happen to me. And thousands of years later, that's exactly what happens on the cross. Jesus being torn apart on the cross like an animal because we didn't keep our promise. But God kept his promise to us. And Jesus kept our promises for us in our place. That's what gets us into covenant community. We're not in the people of God because we've cleaned ourselves up and dressed ourselves up and learned the right language to say and the right songs to sing and the right verses to quote. You can't get yourself in. Only by trusting in what Jesus did for you are you brought in to this community. Seeing what Jesus did for the people of God, see what Jesus did for the people of God to secure them as the people of God. And here's what I'm saying. If Jesus walked to the cross for you, if Jesus hung on the cross as you, you think he won't be with you? You think you're ever alone. He walked to the cross for you. He hung on the cross in your place and he sent his spirit and he promised, my spirit is always with you. We don't have to be lonely. We don't have to experience a loneliness that will crush us. We don't have to experience a loneliness that will define us. Will we always experience some level of loneliness? Yes, why? Because we were created in God's image, but it doesn't have to destroy us or define us because we're never truly alone. He's walking with us. He's brought us in. Now let me make two application points for us and we'll close and we'll finish, I mean. First, if you're part of this church, I wanna really encourage you to not just show up on Sunday mornings or whatever other services you come to during the week, but to actually do life with people, like meaningful life interactions with people. Ask somebody out for dinner. Ask somebody over for dinner. Maybe even before you leave this morning, go up to somebody that you've never had dinner with, you've, ne- you've never gotten together with and say, hey, we'd, we would love to have you over for dinner. We would love to, we got 16 cakes up here. Grab a cake and, and say, we'd love to have you over for cake. You know, whatever, whatever it is. But if you're just showing up on Sunday morning and punching in and punching out, my suggestion to you is it's not really being, you're not really, as Paul talks about, you're not really being built in. I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. But you're missing out on the richness and the riches of true community. Attending a service isn't the measure of true biblical community. Doing life together is. Being there for each other outside of these walls is. And showing up isn't a measure of true community either, but sticking around is sticking around through everything. And then my second application point is this. There are people in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your families that are tremendously lonely. It may not be obvious because we get very good at masking our loneliness, but they are. And this past Sunday night, Tony Briggs challenged us with how we look at the people that we work with. 
When's the last time we've tried to in any way point a conversation with them towards who Christ is? What's the last time we invited them out to a baseball game that the church is doing or, or a dinner and a show or a service? Now, let me say this about the people in your life. First off, uh, don't just invite them to church. Invite them into your life, right? Don't just say, hey, I got something at my church and keep in, if, if you don't have a meaningful relationship with them, then the chances that they're gonna come probably is pretty slim. So don't just invite them to church. Invite them into your life. But don't just invite them into your life. Also invite them to church. So it's, it's both of those things. And the people that you work with, I mean, think about the people that you work with, people you go to school with. Who, do, who would you guess is the loneliest person in the room? The loneliest person that you work with? And go befriend them. There are people out there who are just waiting for someone to come along and be a friend to them. And who knows how God will use your friendship with that person to create a friendship between that person and himself. That's, that's really evangelism. People often say, well, what's your evangelism strategy? You know what my evangelism strategy would be? Everybody go make friends. Like that's the evangelism strategy. Go make friends. Go make friends and then share your life with that friend. And the beauty of your life that's been shaped by the gospel, will, God will use that to draw them in. So we have the reason for loneliness. We've been created in his image. The result of loneliness is that we've been created to be complementary to each other. And then the remedy for loneliness is seeing Jesus, what he did to bring us in and let it change our hearts. Let's pray together this morning.